Good morning. Thank you for, uh, for inviting me to open God's Word with you this morning. Well, if you're like me, you enjoy a good underdog sports movie. Anybody seen one of those? Uh, you know, something like Hoosiers or Remember the Titans or Miracle on Ice. And these movies usually follow the same basic formula, right? A new coach comes to a losing team, and he has to uh, whip them into shape for the upcoming season. And uh, on the team is the usual cast of characters. There's uh, the egocentric star who's only in it for his own stats. There are the bit players... Uh, who like to goof around in practice and who couldn't hit the side of a barn with a rock. Uh, and then there's the loner, the outsider, uh, who may even be the team's best player uh, if he would just come out of his shell. And what happens in the movie? The coach comes in, he starts cracking heads, he instills discipline in practice, he tells the star he's got to shape up and uh, play as a team player or ship out. He befriends the loner. Uh, he gets to the bottom of his, his inner demons, and he allows him to blossom into a vital contributor. And then we see a montage of practices and games uh, where the team starts to pull together and to run through their competition on their way to the big game. The movie climaxes in the championship game when everything the coach uh, has taught comes together and the team plays as a unit and they roll on to glory. Does that sound familiar to any of you? Well, did you know that that movie script comes from the Bible? Maybe not exactly in those terms, but it's there nonetheless. And we're going to see it in today's passage. In our passage today, Peter, like the coach in an underdog movie, is going to lay out a winning strategy for the church. He's going to get the church ready for the big game. And he's going to give the same advice, make the same moves that uh, that movie coach would make. So let's turn in our Bibles to our passage, 1 Peter 4, chapter 4, verses 7 to 11. And we're going to take a look at what Peter has to say. We'll start in verse 7. Uh-oh, now I've got to remember which of these buttons moves forward and which moves backwards. Is that good? All right, let me read uh, 1 Peter 4, 7. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be of sound judgment and sober spirit for the purpose of prayer. The first thing that Coach Peter tells his team is that the big game is right around the corner. As such, his players need to get serious. The big game is around the corner, and we need to get serious. Serious. Now, of course, 
Peter doesn't call it the big game. He calls it the end of all things. Okay? He says the end of all things is at hand. And obviously, he's talking about something much bigger than the state high school championship or the NBA finals or uh, the Super Bowl. He's talking about the day of reckoning before God, the final judgment. He's talking about God's determination of who will enter His eternal glorious kingdom and who will not. And he says, knowing that God's judgment is imminent should sober us up. Now, what does he mean? Well, there are at least two ways that uh, knowing God's judgment is right around the corner should make us sit up and pay attention. First, we need to get serious about the claims of Christ. We need to get serious about whether we are finally going to respond to the gospel in faith. The Bible tells us that it's only on the basis of our trust in the sacrificial death of Christ on the cross and in His resurrection as our Lord that we'll be able to be declared, to be declared innocent at God's final judgment. Our good works won't cut it. Our good looks won't cut it. Our putative spirituality won't cut it. The death of Christ paid the penalty for your sins and allowed you to be restored to a proper relationship to God. It is only by our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and our union with Him on the basis of that faith that we'll pass God's judgment. And now Peter says that judgment is at hand. You don't have any time to waste. Maybe you've heard the gospel before, but you've put off making a response. Maybe you're hearing it for the first time today. Either way, today is the day to make a decision. Turn to God in your heart today and tell Him that you believe that Jesus, His Son, died for your sins and that you're ready to submit to, uh, your life to Him. Or, uh, if you'd like, please talk with me after the service or with anybody that you've seen up on the stage. And some of you, I understand, are watching at home. Contact someone on the church website, but talk to somebody about making a decision to submit your life to Christ today while there's still time. The end of all things is at hand, and we've got to be serious about making a commitment in faith to Jesus. Okay, but what about those of you who have already responded to the good news? That's most of us sitting here in the audience today. After all, in this passage, Peter is talking especially to Christians, to members of the church. So how does Peter expect Christians to get serious? Well, we need to get serious about our Christian lives. We need to get serious about living uh, our whole lives for God's glory and God's kingdom. Now, Peter has talked about this idea 
uh, a lot in this letter already. Probably the last sermon uh, covered some of this idea because he was going over that same territory. But if we look back in chapter 1, beginning in verse 13, Peter tells his readers, prepare your minds for action. Be sober-minded. Fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And then he exhorts them, as obedient children, do not be conformed to your former passions, uh, but as the Holy One who called you, you be holy in all your behavior. You see, without a sense of the impending end, it's easy to lose our focus on what God has called us to and to slip back into our old ways. But Peter says we can't do that. We have to get our act together. We are called to be holy, to be different from the fallen world. We're called to live for God's values and for God's goals and for God's virtues in this world. But when we lose sight of the end, when we lose sight of the final judgment and the passing away of this world and the coming of the eternal kingdom of God, when this world looks like all there is and all there ever will be, uh, we'll put all our hopes and all our energy into this world. We'll be like the guy who proverbially, proverbially climbed the ladder of success and then found it was leaning against the wrong wall. So Peter says to believers that this world is passing away and it's time to get serious about living for the world to come. He isn't saying that Christians should neglect life in this world. He's saying that we should pursue life in this world as people of the world to come, as people who are serious about their calling from God. The time for goofing around is over. The big game is right around the corner, and it's time to get serious. That's the first thing that Coach Peter tells us. But then he adds that the reason we need to get serious is so we can pay attention to the head coach. Take a look again at verse 7. Peter says, The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be of sound judgment and sober spirit for the purpose of prayer. That's interesting. Be sober and focused for the purpose of prayer. Peter's suggesting that there's a correlation between our commitment to winning and our commitment to prayer. Knowing that God's judgment is imminent should drive us to our knees. Again, I think there are two reasons for this. First, regular prayer reminds us that we're supposed to be about God's business, not our own. It helps us stay focused uh, on God's glory and God's kingdom. Do you remember what Jesus said when his disciples asked him to teach them to pray? What were the first things 
that Jesus said we ought to be seeking, uh, what, we, uh, what we ought to be asking God for in our prayers. How did his model prayer begin? Our Father, who art in heaven, what? Hallowed be thy name. Hallowed be thy name. May your name be honored. May your name be respected. May your name, your reputation, your glory, your person be treated as holy in this world and in my life in particular. We should be saying first and foremost when we're praying, help me to seek your glory and your honor in all that I do and say today. That's how Jesus' model prayer began. And what did he teach us to pray next? May your kingdom come, may your will be done on earth, in this world generally, and in my life specifically, as it is in heaven. Help me to stay focused to stay focused on and to long for the end of all things. When your good and righteous and harmonious kingdom uh, will replace this fallen and broken kingdom of the world. So prayer, uh, when it's done as Jesus taught us, orients our heart toward God's business. It reminds us that we're to be seeking God's kingdom and God's righteousness throughout uh, our daily lives. But the corollary uh, is that prayer puts us in a position not just uh, to speak to God, to ask God that He be glorified, but to hear from God, uh, to get the game plan for uh, for this day or for some particular situation. Regular prayer helps us stay attentive to God's voice. When we stop and humble our hearts before God, the Holy Spirit has a chance to speak to us, to remind us of what God says in His Word, uh, to lead us in the best way to honor God or to love our neighbors in the midst of a million decisions uh, that we have to make every single day. Without focusing our hearts and opening our ears in daily prayer, we flounder around and we fall back on our old worldly ways of thinking and acting. So, Peter tells us that the end of all things is at hand. The final test is approaching. Tomorrow's the big game. We need to stop goofing around. We need to get serious. And we need to pay attention to the coach and his game plan. We need to commit ourselves to God uh, and his goals. And then Peter tells us that we need to practice our teamwork. We need to play as a team. Take a look at verses 
8 to 11. Above all, keep fervent in your love for one another, because love covers a multitude of sins. Be hospitable to one another without complaint. As each one has received a gift, employ it in serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. Whoever speaks, do so as one who is speaking the utterances of God. Whoever serves, do so as one who is serving by the strength which God supplies, so that in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom belongs the glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Here Peter says that knowing that God's judgment is imminent should drive us together. He lays out uh, three ways that Christians are to relate to one another. Uh, How we're supposed to play as a team in light of the imminent end of all things. First, uh, we're to love one another. Second, we're to be hospitable to one another. And third, we're to use our gifts to serve one another. In essence, he says, be committed to the health and unity of the church because the church is going to be your family for eternity. God is not only shaping us as individuals for eternity, He's shaping us as a community for eternity. It seems to me that too many Christians, at least in the United States, approach their relationship with God as an individual thing. Church is considered as sort of optional or worse as a consumer product. Too many American Christians attend church, especially when it's convenient uh, for them or because it suits their tastes uh, in one way or another, but they don't do church. They don't commit to a community uh, that they can pour themselves into. They don't contribute to the life of the church, to the life of the body of Christ. But Peter, like a good coach before the big game, says that that attitude has to stop. We need to be team players. Uh, You've probably heard the old bromide, especially if you've watched these movies. There's no I in team, right? Uh, The new coach has to call out the egocentric star player because his ball hogging and his uh, stats inflating play is hurting the team. And that's exactly what Peter says here. He says, love others above yourself. Be more committed to the team than you are to your own agenda. Uh, He says this in a couple of different ways. First, he says, we need to uh, overlook other people's faults and offenses. Um, Peter begins by exhorting believers in verse 8 to love one another fervently, keep fervent in your love for one another, to be uh, committed to one another, to zealously 
seek the good of your brothers and sisters in Christ. And why are we supposed to live like this? Why are we supposed to love like this? What does he say at the end of verse 8? Because love covers a multitude of sins. I don't know if you've ever heard this ditty. I I heard it when I was a young believer, uh, and I thought it was funny at the time, but uh, it it expresses a lot of people's attitudes. Uh, It went like this. To dwell above with saints we love, oh, that will be glory. But to dwell below with saints we know, well, that's another story. Okay. The body of Christ isn't perfect yet. And the people in church are going to have conflicts. Things aren't always going to go your way or meet your preferences. But Peter says, if you're committed to the health and unity of the church, you're not going to let that bother you. You won't let it undermine your commitment to the body. Are there any married folks in the audience? I assume so. Raise your hand uh, if you're married. What makes a good marriage work? Or a good parental relationship work? It's when our love for our spouse or for our kids trumps our love for ourselves. It's when commitment to the relationship is greater than our commitment to our own rights or our own desires. When Peter says that love covers a multitude of sins, he's saying that love for one another and commitment to the relationship with that person overlooks or at least works through personal slights. It means love is willing to forgive. Uh, Love doesn't make mountains out of molehills. Love is willing to compromise. So Peter says, be willing to take one for the team. Love one another fervently because love covers a multitude of sins. And then in verse 9, he gets a little more uh, specific about one way that we can love one another. He says, we're to share our resources uh, to meet one another's needs. We're to show hospitality to one another is the way he puts it, without grumbling. In other words, doing church extends beyond these four walls. It extends into our everyday life. Now, hospitality was a major concern in the early church. It's all over uh, the New Testament. Uh, That's because traveling in general was dangerous in those days, and there weren't a lot of good places Uh, to stay when you were on the road. Moral people avoided the roadside inns uh, at all costs. And Christians in particular were a small, uh, isolated, uh, often oppressed minority. Uh, They were isolated from the larger society and from the larger economy. So they depended on the generosity 
and material support of their brethren. So when Peter urges his readers to be hospitable, he's not merely saying, open up your homes uh, to one another. He's telling them to meet one another's material needs, uh, to put feet to their love by helping out their brothers and sisters in their everyday lives. Do you remember what John said in 1 John 3? In verses 6 to 18, he said this, We know love by this, that He, God, Jesus Christ, that He laid down His life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. But whoever has the world's goods and beholds his brother in need and closes his heart to him, how does the love of God abide in him? Little children, let us not love with word or tongue, but in deed and truth. Our faith is not an individualistic faith. We are responsible to one another uh, in tangible, material ways. And notice that Peter says here in, in our passage, he emphasizes this a second time, uh, that our egos have to get out of the way uh, when we show hospitality. He says, show hospitality without grumbling, without uh, complaint, without uh, making a stink about it. It's sometimes hard for us to help out a fellow Christian who's in need if it inconveniences us, if, they, if it asks too much of us. This is especially true when we think that that person has been irresponsible or when they've come to us time and time again and they've overstayed their welcome. And I understand those concerns. Uh, we certainly need to be wise in our generosity. But we also need to be willing to be taken advantage of for the sake of loving like Jesus loved. We ought, in the words of John, to be willing, like Jesus, to lay down our lives, to lay down our money, uh, to lay down our pride, our material possessions, our time, our desires, our leisure for the brethren. Peter says, there's no I in team. As the end approaches, the Lord expects us to love the church above loving ourselves. And that's the first thing that Peter says about being a team player. The second thing uh, that he says is to play our position. Okay, Take a look again at verses 10 and 11. Peter says, uh, as each one has received a special gift, employ it in serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. Whoever speaks is to do so as one who is speaking the utterances of God. Whoever serves is to do so as one who is serving by the strength which God supplies. Each of us has a job to do in the church. In fact, you have a job to do in this church to make it function as well as it can to the glory of God. God has given each of us 
skills, and passions to be used for the good of his body. None of us is left out. None of us is too insignificant. Each of us has been given grace by God, and we're to steward that grace uh, in service to one another and to the church. We all have a position on the team, and we need, we need to play our position if the team is going to win, if it's going to achieve its objective. So very quickly, Peter breaks down uh, the positions into two kinds of jobs, uh, not offense and defense, but speaking jobs and doing jobs. Okay? Let's think about speaking jobs first. Some types of speech are gifts that are used regularly in the church. These would be things like teaching or preaching. But a lot of types of speech are gifts that are used irregularly uh, outside these four walls. Uh, and not by some, I don't know, official uh, in the church. These, can be, these are practiced by everybody. And these would include things like encouraging someone who's discouraged or chastising someone who's out of line. And we can all minister those gifts of grace. The same thing is true of gifts of service. Some gifts of service are used regularly here in the church, like, I don't know, setting up the sanctuary on Sunday morning or serving as an usher or playing an instrument, something like that. Okay? Uh, but other gifts of service are used irregularly uh, as the need arises and happen all, uh, all over our lives. Okay? They could be things like uh, bringing a meal to a family who's in need, or, I don't know, changing the oil uh, for a single mother's car. All are manifestations of the grace of God in our lives uh, that we can use for the health and unity of the church to the glory of God. And you don't need to worry about what your quote-unquote spiritual gift is uh, before you start playing your position. Okay? Uh, you can always, when God prompts you, speak or serve as the situation arises. Uh, you just need to see a, a need and fulfill it. As God prompts you and empowers you, Serve your brothers and sisters. Contribute to the team. When you do, God will be glorified, His church will be strengthened, and will be ready for the big game. So, to recap, uh, maybe to recap, there we go. Peter tells us that the end of all things is at hand. We're facing the big game. In light of that, we need to get serious. We need to listen to the coach. And we need to work 
as a team, setting aside our own egos, our own agendas, and playing our position to the best of our ability. And I wonder uh, which of these applies most directly to you. Do you need to start taking your relationship with God and pursuit of His ways more seriously? If so, what can you do this week to begin to do that? I want you to think about that. What can you do this week to take God and His ways more seriously in your life? Or do you need to commit or recommit to a time of regular prayer in order to orient your heart daily to God and His ways? How about starting today or first thing tomorrow morning? Make that commitment. Or maybe you need to put aside your individualistic approach to faith and commit yourself to the body of Christ, contributing your gifts and service to this church. What can you do to begin to put feet on that commitment this week? Let's all, right now, decide to get serious, to listen to the coach, and to play as a team. If we do, Peter says, God will be glorified and we'll all be ready for the championship. Amen? Amen.